Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30 this morning as we go through this wonderful epistle. When you open the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You have the book of Acts. And then a group of letters start. We're in the book of Romans. We're at 8, 28, 29, and 30 this morning. This chapter is very rich and full. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Hear the word of the Lord. Thoughtful people ask questions. Someone has read Romans 8, 28, and they listen to the affirmation that, in fact, and indeed, uh, God works out and causes all things to work out for good. And they ask, why would God do that? How could he cause it all for good? What is he doing? What's behind this lovely affirmation about God's causing all things to work together for good? How does it work out to be called good? What is God saying? What is God doing? This morning, I would like to think with you about what Paul has written I want to look first at the affirmation of Romans 8.28. We've already been here. We won't spend a lot of time here, but we need to look at the glory of what is affirmed. Then, secondly, I want to unpack this good. If you're asking what kind of good is being caused to work out in all things, Paul answers that question in verse 29 and verse 30. And then finally, what difference does this make? This wasn't written to satisfy our curiosity, but to fill our soul with courage and strength upon which to stand and live in the day in which we find ourselves. So first, the central affirmation. Romans 8 and 28's question is this. How good is this good that is working together? Now, this is a common, uh, wonderful verse that comes with that great question. What kind of good is it? Paul explains the kind of good it is in the next two verses. In fact, Romans 8, 29, and 30 are kind of the New Testament equivalent of that summary verse in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, and God saw everything that he had created, and behold, it was very good. And here, he's going to describe why why it is good and what he is causing for good for his children. Paul explains this kind of good in these verses. If you've ever wondered what kind of good God was speaking of in Romans 8 and 28, this is your Sunday. 
And that good is unpacked in the five verbs that are in Romans 8, 29, and 30. These five daisy chain together and form a complete picture of the good that God is enacting and working for his children. Five verbs, secondly, frame the glory of this good. It's a glorious chain, some call it. It's a chain of five links. Now, James Dunn has said this, and we've listened to Paul's description in the book of Romans of Adam plunging the human race into the great tragedy of rebellion against God, and we all face the aftermath of that. And that description gets dark, and that's where we've been. But now what he is doing is he's describing in the brightest of terms the glory of the second Adam and what he brought about. If in the first Adam all die, those associated in repentance and faith with the second Adam, Jesus Christ, this is his thinking in Romans 5, you remember he calls in the second Adam, he explains the glory of the good that he brings about. James Dunn has said, Paul brings his exposition full circle. From the somber analysis of Adam failing and self-destructiveness to the climax of the second Adam and the success and life productiveness of what Jesus Christ has brought to his own. Now don't miss as we go through this the temporal nuance. There are time words here. As we read the scripture, we make sense out of it by the words that God moved Paul to write. And here he has time words. It's interesting. He talks about the distant past where God, and we're going to explore this, foreknew. Then he talks about the recent past where God called us. And then he talks about the future where God glorifies us but what's fascinating is the tense that he uses he frames it in a past tense and we're going to talk about why that's most significant now what we need to do is put these five verbs together as a unit no one of them stands alone they stand in relationship to each other and frame the whole picture and it is one to behold that is very very good. Now, cannot it be said of God, in light of these five verbs, verses 29 and 30, that God has always been doing good for us. A chain of good to the fifth power. Now, notice there's a phrase that is repeated often here, four times. He also, he also, he also, he also. That phrase actually is pregnant with a lot of meaning. Is that how you view God? Uh, He not only does this, he also does this. Of those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ so that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, 
he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also. It keeps stacking up the also things that God does. Do we carry in our spirit this sense that he's a God of, he also does this. And he also is working for my good here. He also. There's something about having a robust view of the goodness of God that's a God who's a he also God pointed out four times in the text. So let's look at these five verbs. Verb number one, he foreknew us. He foreknew us. A loving reach identifying us for his family. To foreknow. It means to know with a prefix ahead of time. To know ahead of time. The emphasis of the knowing is a very affectionate and personal knowing. It's akin to that delicate term in the Old Testament when a man would get married to a woman and they would come together in holy matrimony. The text would say something in in a beautiful way and he knew his wife and she conceived and bore children. A verse might say something like that. What what kind of knowledge is that? It's, It's a loving, most affectionate, familial, intimate knowledge. That's the concept in this knowing. It's a loving, a lovingly knowing ahead of time. He foreknew us. Come with me to Ephesians uh, 1, 4, and 5. In just a moment, we'll get in a skirmish about predestination. But before we get there, it's important to look at this verse that Steve read. If you look at verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians chapter 1, which Steve read, there's an unfortunate versification, is the formal way to say it, uh, a change from verse 4 to verse 5. Now, you know, when Paul was writing, he didn't write, all right, this is the first verse in the first chapter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful to Christ Jesus. All right, this is the second verse. Grace to you. You know, editors uh, being faithful to the original text in English have put those verses in there. There's a real unfortunate verse change between 4 and 5 because the notion of predestination in Ephesians 1 and verse 5 The verse starts out, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will. But what is missing is the front part of that sentence, and it's a real unfortunate uh, verse break because it starts like this. In love, he predestined us. And so that vision of predestination that Paul is laying out is couched in the skin of deep affection, and that's what's going on at the fountainhead of this good in the first link in the chain. He foreknew us, a loving reach identifying us for his family. Now, there's two kinds of knowing about a surprise birthday party. Have you been to a surprise birthday party lately? If you've been to one and you are a guest, you know about the party. And the reason you know about the surprise birthday party that's supposed to be hidden from the person you're celebrating the birthday with is because someone has told you what is coming. And you've looked on your calendar out there and they've plotted it out there and they've informed you that it's coming. That's one way to know about a surprise party. There's another way to know about a surprise party and it's you know about it because you planned it and it's your idea. 
and you are orchestrating the whole thing and you've let others know of your plans. Now, this foreknowing is not like the invitation to the surprise party. It's you know about the party because you planned it. That's what is being said about God. God didn't look into history, and there's a a vision of God in the last 50 years that has grown up that's really an unorthodox thought about God, that God is becoming and growing with us, and so that God, in real time, as history unfolds, oh, well, golly, I didn't know that was going to happen, and and that that's, that's his, you know, that's not this word foreknowledge. It wasn't that God looked out and said, oh, they'll all be, that person's going to become a Christian. It's not that kind of knowing. What he has done, it's not looking out and seeing what's going to happen. It's planning the surprise birthday party. He looks to see and understands because he anticipated it with his foreknowledge to be. It's, it's not, well, I'll be, that's going to happen, but let it be. And God said, and it was so not unlike creation. It's more than just God would see it would happen. He could see it because he planned it to happen. A part of the glory of his working in good for those who've been called and who love him is that he foreknew us. A loving reach, identifying us for his family. But there's more. Secondly, he predestined us. A determining grace that set the trajectory for us. By the way, if you want to cause a Baptist fight, use the word predestination. You'll get two responses. On number one, some people smile. Number two, some people snarl. And there are opposing views. Please understand, there was... um, uh, If you're saying, Eric, wait a minute. Are you telling me that you believe in predestination? Here's what I'm telling you. I believe everything the Bible says about predestination. And one of the things we have to come to grips with is the word predestination is in God's good book, right there in the B-I-B-L-E. It's there. And we must reckon with its presence. Etymologically, the term means marking out a boundary ahead of time. It's about a predetermination. God included believers in Christ within the perimeter of his boundaries. His act to predestinate us had an end. It wasn't just willy-nilly without purpose. Notice what we are predestined to if we belong to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. For what? To be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, um, our children are always in an argument over who is the favorite in the family. And it's, it's playful. Uh, often it is viewed as the firstborn has the ascendancy, been around the longest, is the favorite. Uh, in a Jewish family, the firstborn got a double portion of the inheritance and was considered favored. So this 
term firstborn is a term for priority. So here is Jesus Christ among the children of God that God has gathered from humanity through his foreknowledge, through his predestination, through his calling, through his justification, through his glorification. And Jesus Christ companies with us and we are destined on a journey to be conformed to the image of Christ so that we would stand with him and be like him because of God's work we are given to having been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It's going somewhere. God's work in our life has a trajectory. We are headed somewhere. And where we are headed and what he is doing is he's conforming us to the image of his son. Predestination was a means to the end of conforming us to Jesus Christ. Eric, I don't understand what God's doing in my life. What you are involved in right now in providence, some of which is joyful and some of which is, you know, ripping your gizzard out. What you were involved in is a process that God has ordained to bring you into conformity to his son, Jesus Christ. He loves us that much. Now, the third verb is this notion of called. He called us. It's an invitation that affected our heart to respond. Oh, Eric, I know what this is, the call. Yeah, that's the free offer of the gospel. Whosoever will may come. That's the call of God for whosoever will may come. We believe in the free offer of the gospel here at Calvary Baptist Church. Jesus believed in it, so we believe in it. Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you shall find rest for your souls. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is the free offer, the invitation that is free and to be given liberally. I was so encouraged last Sunday morning to sit down next to a young man. And we were talking, and uh, he's a guileless sort, and he wasn't trying to impress me. I know his spirit in a little bit. And he said, I said, how was your week? He said, oh, I had a good week. And we said, why was it a good week? He said, you know, I've been praying about my workmates and the opportunity to share Jesus with them. And in the middle of a conversation, the door opened, and I realized, hey, this is what I've been praying for. And we had a talk. And he was so joyful, and I thought, wow, if God fills this place up full of people who are joyful like that, there is no end to what he will do through us. Because the coolest thing about our church is where we go when the huddle is over as we spread out all over northern Kentucky and throughout this part of our nation in our places of influence, may his tribe increase. But remember that all these links in the chain fit together and this call eventually ends up absolutely for everyone who is called to glorification. Now, wait a minute. Not everyone who receives the free offer of the gospel, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be safe. Not everyone believes that. So this call is a particular call that's not the free offer call invitation of the gospel. 
It is a special call that moves our heart effectively to him. I spent most of my childhood in a pasture field, four acres behind our house growing up, that the neighbor poured a basketball court in. And all the boys in the neighborhood, we'd be over there. And invariably, uh, supper time would come, and my mom would step out onto the back porch, and she'd say, Eric, dinner's ready. Now, when I knew her voice, and so while the other men on the court would They might have heard it. They didn't recognize the voice because they weren't attentive to it. It wasn't their mom. I also knew what would happen if I didn't respond to that voice and get to the dinner table and sit down with my family. So I tended to be responsive. And um, but there was something internal to me that drew me when I heard that voice. Now, what's different about God's call? And this is the glory of the good is that Though we've never heard that call before because we're dead in our trespasses and our sins and not responsive to God, when he calls to us, we hear a familiar voice and it's effectual. Or as Jonathan Edwards said, we we gain in that moment a new and sweet sense of divine things that we didn't have before. There was the before the call when we were unresponsive and things of God seemed odd and strange and foolish. And then there's the after the call where suddenly our heart has been opened or what Paul describes of Lydia in Acts 16. And while she was listening, God opened her heart to believe. And when we believe and embrace it, we begin to realize things in retrospect that we would never have realized. Why? Because God has called us. And in his call, it's effective to open our hearts for new, predestined, calls us. It's a compelling draw from God's heart to our own, and it's effectual. Please note, we didn't make the call. In that sense, we didn't call him. He called to us first. We love him because he first loved us. What a glorious initiation from God. Now, the fourth term is this term justified. He justified us. And to those he called, he also justified. That's a declaration of a righteous standing before a holy God. He declares those righteous that he calls. We are viewed by him as something which we are not, and he gives us the gift of a righteous standing. This calling comes with a status that we are gifted. Suddenly, we are acceptable to God, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus, the perfections of his life, the beauty of his person. We are justified, declared righteous, We're given a classification that gives us entry into the family of God. I've traveled before with folks, and I'm always jealous with somebody with multiple passports. Now, I've never traveled with, you know, a knock with the CIA who's being surreptitious. But I have traveled with people who had dual citizenship. And when we get to their country, I'm always really jealous because I pull out my gringo American passport not to stand in that big, old, fat line. And if I'm flying to Amman, you'll remember our friend Amman, or uh, Ahmad Shahadi, who is the president of the Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary. He has a passport, American passport, and a Jordanian passport. So when he gets to Jordan, we're getting there, we disembark off the plane, we go to Passport Central. There's like 
two people in line and it's going super fast if you're from Jordan to get through Passport Central. Then there's a super long line of these people that aren't Jordanian. I, I got to go stand in that line. But he has a status because of his citizenship there that gives him free passage right through. We, notwithstanding our sin, this is the glory of the cross, have been given a status in Jesus Christ that lets us pass into his very presence. What a glory there is to be justified. He declares us what we are in his sight and then what we become. Now, there are different kinds of righteousness, all kinds of flavors of self-righteousness. My worst favorite flavor is Baptist righteousness. That will not pass muster. We need the righteousness of Jesus. Catholic righteousness is not going to help us either, nor Presbyterian righteousness or Episcopal righteousness. Uh, or, you know, the, you have this secular creed now, the party line that we're supposed to embrace. Uh, secular righteousness is not going to help us either. What, all our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. Isaiah 64, 6, uh, phrase translated there, a polluted garment. Now, this tense of the verb matters here, too. We've been justified. That means that's a settled matter. It's done. It's finished, which is what Jesus said on the cross. It's accomplished. It's no longer an open question about whether or not we will be found acceptable before God. That issue is resolved. The question about whether or not we are righteous enough is finished. It's settled. The verdict is already rendered. Our destiny is settled. Conformity to Jesus Christ, standing given this status of being declared righteous, finally. The fifth link in this chain is he glorified us. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now the striking feature of this verb in this chain is that it's framed in the past tense as if it is already completed. As God looks at us in Christ, this is how he sees us. Finished. Here I stand. You say, Eric, I, th I thought we were going to be glorified when we see Jesus. First John 3, 2, when we see him, we will be like him. We will be transformed to be like him. His essence, the glorious expression of his righteousness and who he is, we will be swallowed up in that and become that. You say, Eric, as you stand here, are you glorified this morning? You need to talk to my wife if you think that. She will disabuse you of the notion that I stand in a glorified state. No, I'm in the way, in progress, just like you are, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. But here he frames it as something already accomplished. That's significant. Because in God's eyes, that which is yet future is already certain. That's confidence. That's the basis, the grist of a blessed assurance marked out as accomplished already. It's like before the trial ever starts, 
or the jury heard any of the prosecution's case, the foreman rises to tell the judge, judge, we have a verdict. It's not guilty. It's over. Before it began, it's settled because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir has a song that's really sweet. Uh, God is going to finish just what he started. And that's maybe the lyricist, Mrs. Symbola, uh, was thinking about these verses when she wrote it. So those five verbs frame the good that he is working for us. Now, why does that matter? Coming to the table. The author of the book of Hebrews says, let's... Uh, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So we ask, what's, what's so great? This is the greatness of what is framed. This good brings two things. Number one, this good brings God's work in our life to make us like Jesus. We are to be conformed to the image of his son. Our predestination has a trajectory, conformity to Jesus. Eric, what is God doing? He's making us like his son, to be conformed to the image of his son. That word image is the word from which we get our English word icon. Now, we're right in the middle of the professional basketball world championship, it is called. And so we're seeing a lot of the logo. They have a logo, a branding and it's a basketball player making a move, and it's, 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 it's in their branding. That's their icon. It's actually, that icon stems from a player who played for 14 years, I believe, named Jerry West. He's from West Virginia, grew up in the coal camp south of Charleston, and went to West Virginia University. They played for the NCAA championship in 59. He went on, played 14 years, uh, and... Um, played with the Lakers and in Los Angeles, and he retired. But he, was, he had a good run, and he was considered a great player. So they said, you know what? That's our model. That's our icon. We want our players. We want our league. Who's the face of the league? We want it to be Jerry West. So for years, that's been the icon. In the same way, Jesus Christ is our model. He's our example. He's the icon set before us. He is whom God is working to take us toward and fashion us to be like him. So then that brings us to a question this morning. How is conformity to Jesus Christ going where we are? Uh, there's a verse in Psalm 32, 9 that says, don't be like a horse or a mule that needs a bit or a bridle to be taken around. Does God find his work to conform you to be like Jesus easy work, or is it like breaking a stubborn mule? Further, are we further along in the process today than we were five years ago? How is this that we are destined to conformity to Jesus Christ? How is it going where we are. You ever heard someone say of another person, their selflessness is just like Jesus? Would anyone ever say that of me? Would anyone ever say that of you? Finally, this good brings rest and assurance to weary souls. I've never recovered from reading Romans 8:30, and them he also glorified. Past tense, settled, finished. It was when I first realized that it was over. And that it was finished. 
and that God brought me to understand the gospel, something settled with him that he did. I spent years in the throes of, had I prayed right? Did I believe enough? Was I faithful enough? Have I done the right things? Have I been the right person? Am I kind enough? Am I righteous enough? And then I realized, them he also glorified. Wait a minute, to God, this stuff is already settled because he settled it in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. In 87, Andy and I got our first mortgage. And it was in the days where we were still de-escalating from the President Carter uh, inflation rates. And so our first mortgage was 10.5%. And we thought, man, that's really good. We got a good mortgage price. You know, our, our, ours now is a bit better than that. But uh, I remember when we got it, I was, I was real nervous because we were taking this on. I thought, oh, this is terrible. I'm going to sign my name and the next 30 years belongs to somebody else. And this is terrible. And, I, and it was a screamer too. I think it was $295 was my uh, payment then. Um, I think that's what you rent car insurance for a month these days. But anyway, my dad had a long relationship with these bankers in town that he knew. So he said, Eric, let's go to this bank. And so we went to Security Bank. And the head of the residential loans, his son, played basketball with me at Cedar Hill College. And so I knew him. He's a nice man. And dad knew the other banker. And uh, 10 o'clock Saturday morning, I was supposed to be there. So I get the bank. I was kind of nervous, you know, signing. I never had a mortgage before. And. So I, I got there, and I walked in, and I was getting this all in my name, and Dad was just there because he knew these guys and wanted to help me, and he knew them. He had done a lot of banking and transactions with them. And so I walk in, and as I walk in, I was kind of scared and a bit nervous. And I walk in, and my dad, the first thing he said was, well, it's over. And I go, what? He goes, it's over. We're done. We're done here. So just sign your name. And uh, what he meant was that all the details... He had gone and worked out ahead of time, and it was actually settled and done. Now, the only difference between this illustration and the great salvation of God is I was handed the payment book and not my dad, you know. (laughs) But our father on Good Friday paid a debt that we never would have been able to pay in the glory of his son's sacrifice for us. So much so that this stuff of being glorified, which is our franchise in the future and forever, in God's eyes, it's a done deal already settled. So it's framed exactly like it's framed to quiet our anxious hearts. I'll tell you what is exceedingly exhausting. It's trying to save ourselves on some self-righteous errand. It's loathsome. But oh, the joy and rest of resting in Jesus, who before he said, into your hands I commit my spirit, said this, it is finished. And if it's finished with God, it needs to be finished with us, which fills our heart with gratitude and brings us time and again to this table with great joy. Heavenly Father, Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for his work on our behalf. The glories of his life, the benefits of his death, the wonderful hope of his resurrection. 
Praise be to God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, help us yield our members to you into conformity to Jesus Christ. Help us rest in the security of what you have done. It's still this morning, Titus 3, 5. He saved us. You are the actor. We receive the action. And all glory goes to God. You didn't leave us alone. Literally, you didn't say to hell with them. You took our hell so that we could have life and be free and accepted. Father, this chain of glory is unending. And we are grateful. Move us this morning with it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.